Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of the book Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, a SAGE publication. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars and workshops, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee is Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia. As a Duke University visiting scholar, Dr. Chatterjee has taught in the Master of Engineering and Cybersecurity program at the Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. Our discussion today will revolve around bridging the gap between intentions and practicality. Daniela Almeida, Chief Information Security Officer at Tinker, is our guest today. Welcome, Daniela. Thank you, Dr. David. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you very much for your invitation. Thank you. So I'm very excited about our discussion topic today. It excites me because there's a lot of guidance out there, lots of recommendations out there. Still, for a variety of reasons, practitioners are not able to follow through, not because they don't have the right intentions, but because of certain situations and circumstances. I hope this episode will shed some light on those contextual factors and provide a much more practical perspective on how an organization can secure itself from various types of cyber attacks. So that's an exciting plan, and I'm looking forward to your insights. But before we get into those details, share with us a bit about your professional journey. My professional journey, well, that's out of the the box, I think. I don't come from uh, IT. I'm not an engineer. I come from cultural sciences, cultural studies. So my, my major and my master's degree, first master's degree is in communication and cultural studies. So it's in the branch of sociology, anthropology, and a bit of psychology as well. And then I, I think it was really an accident. And I think most practitioners say that they've, they've fallen into information security by accident. Uh, in my case, it was. My career started as a compliance officer. And back in the days, there was no information security role. So compliance would do the whole lot, including privacy and security and, and so on. And that's where I found out that I had the taste for information security, for cybersecurity, and I developed there. And then that's why I decided to have a, an executive master's in um, cybersecurity to complement or at least to give me the hard skills that I didn't have from cultural studies. Although always a geek since I was small, so... I still cherish the moments with my ZX Spectrum and Commodore Amiga. And <laughs> so that, that also comes from the fact that I did enjoy working with computers, but um, it is curious. And sometimes people ask me, so you come from communication. Isn't it a bit the opposite of information security? And for me, it's an advantage in this field because knowing how communication, sciences of communication work, you can appreciate how much information is worth and how important it is to safeguard it. So it's on the side, I'm actually 
I've come from the other side of the mirror, but it has been an advantage, especially with the the human factor that helps me align with the hard skills in cybersecurity. Right now, well, actually, I was um, born and raised in Portugal, and I uh, three years more than three years ago, I moved to the Netherlands to work as the business information security officer for for Leesplan headquarters, and now. Since the beginning of this year, I'm the CISO at Finca, which is a fintech organization that focuses on responsible uh, deferred payment uh, services. So that's pretty much me in a nutshell. Fantastic. And thanks for sharing that very eclectic background. You'd assume that people need to have a strong technical foundation to be in a field of cybersecurity. And again, nothing wrong with having a strong technical foundation. It helps, never hurts. But one also has to value the soft skill sets. The more I talk to cybersecurity professionals across organizations, I find that it is that blend of hard and soft skills that is critical. And in your case, having a strong foundation in communications, along with your understanding of anthropology and psychology, are all very important. Because at the end of the day, you're dealing with people. People continue to be the strongest asset and also the biggest weakness when it comes to securing organizations. So I'm sure you're operating from a position of strength, from a position of advantage. So, Daniela, when we were discussing about what we should be, you know, what should be the topic for this episode, you came up with this idea that how about something along the lines of bridging the gap between intentions and practicality in cybersecurity. And I love it. Share with the listeners why this topic or this theme appealed to you. Oh, I hope I don't regret regret <laughs> this, this subject because it, um, it might be seat for discussion. And I'm very passionate about the human side of cybersecurity. And one of the things that I, um, that I do see with my peers in, in the industry is that we all mean the best. We all want to protect organizations. That is all we want to do. Are we doing the right thing? Or is it all because we don't have the budget or the resources? But we have other problems that we may need to work uh, on from ourselves. And usually we hear from organizations saying that security is very important, but most of the time the actions do not reflect this statement, right? And I, I've seen that concern over the years. There is a, a major or official priority over information security, but it's usually reactive. So we see that only after major breaches and losses, information security comes to, to the agenda. So it's an afterthought. And not only in the strategic standpoint uh, of cybersecurity, uh, all the types of the organizations, but also in awareness, for example. And this is one of the, uh, the, the most, I think that the most obvious example is awareness. And this is where things are going wrong in some organizations. It's often, and I hate this a lot. So I'm actually also coming from the business information security officer role. I'm very passionate about awareness and listening to the organizations, to the core organization. And sometimes it strikes me that when people talk about incidents that were caused by human error, we immediately think of the end users. However, the humans are actually the basis and the creators of systems and their interconnections and the elements that make an organization. So not only the end users. And 
that I think that's why it's also important to look at cybersecurity, not only from the, the IT or management angle, but also from a sociological uh, point of view, I think. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> In fact, it is unfortunate that your experience has been that organizations are usually reactive and which is kind of what keeps coming up time and again. So it's consistent. I would assume that by now with all the major breaches that have happened and that have received a lot of media attention, that organizations would strive to be in a more of a proactive mode. Based on your experience working in this area, why do you think this reactive approach? Why not proactive? What's stopping an organization from being proactive? Well, I think that there are several factors at play and not only lack of funds or lack of resources. I believe that there is, and of course that I'm biased talking about a, a, sociology, a sociological traits, but there is a huge loss in translation between the security practice or the security agenda and the overall organization. And maybe uh, one of one of the, the factors in that is the lack of cybersecurity um, mindset of the board. And once you have this, this gap, once you have this problem here, then you have many other pain points such as not a proactive attitude, unprepared members of the organization, unclear risk management strategy, low response maturity, etc. And I do believe that this is maybe debatable. And I would love to hear from your from your listeners after after that, after our session, that is, I think that we practitioners are also at fault. It's our fault as well. And I think that along with other areas such as privacy, with the GDPR fever that we had in Europe for some years ago and compliance, we've been building an ivory tower. And this ivory tower, ivory tower increases the gap between us and them. And I usually blame it or I kind of tend to blame it on the misinterpretation and ill implementation of the lines of defense model. So, you know, the first line as being operation, second, third. And if you are on the second line, in my view, you're not supposed to just sit on your high chair and just disconnect from operation. And I see this in many organizations, including complex and big organizations. And that's really unfortunate. And it doesn't end there, I think. One of the, my favorite pain points, I think it's used, and I'm sure that you've seen that as well, is the excessive use of the fear factor in the communications towards the audience. That is, the fear factor is when we use the latest news articles about major data breaches, about sanctions, and we tend to use the, the tone of, uh, we're all going to die. Uh, very afflictive, very urgent. And this is not only in awareness, this is also in presentations to the board that we tend to fill in with this type of data. From a managerial perspective, it makes sense to know all the facts to enable informed decision making and to highlight the importance of the cybersecurity program with the data we have. However, from a sociological perspective, we are perpetually appealing to the basic needs or deficiency needs of the human being. If we consider that we're always appealing to the need for safety of the human being, we only have the reactive stimuli. We only get that. So you only get reaction. So you, you get the reactive tone of uh, cybersecurity right there. And the term or the concept of learned helplessness helps interpreting this. When you have learned helplessness, it's pretty much like whatever I do, it's not worth it because I'll always be punished. I'll always be subject or be a target of cybersecurity incidents, cybersecurity attacks. So why should I worry? And 
Even in cognitive security, this is called as apathy. It's also present. It's classified. If, if you check the declassified uh, investigation manuals from the CIA, the QBARC, for example, apathy is referred to frequently in terms of excessive use of fear. And this is what we're doing right now in general, of course. And this goes hand in hand with using KPIs that underline how bad your organization is behaving in terms of phishing campaigns. Look, all these users, they fail the phishing campaign. So using negative social proof is, in my view, very counterproductive. And we're still communicating with technical jargon, acting very patronizing that the users don't know anything, that the problem is between the chair and the screen, and boring. And above all, our strategy is not tailored towards our organization. It's detached in standards, and it doesn't create... Actually, you mentioned this in your book. I loved your book, by the way. Thank you. It's, it's, it's like the essential 101 for security. You need to have this. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in your book the bonds of attachment. And this is what we are not doing, is to create or to embed cybersecurity in the culture of the organization. We're actually trying to counter it, counter those bonds of attachment, and that won't work. Interesting. You touched upon so many very important points. I want to pick up on a few things here, you know, probe a little deeper. One of the things you mentioned was a lack of a cybersecurity mindset amongst this leadership. Now, given that there are all these compliance requirements, and Europe, of course, is very big on privacy, the GDPR requirements have to be strictly followed, or there are major penalties. You know, given these kinds of regulatory expectations and mandates, it does surprise me that the leadership mindset regarding cybersecurity is not changing. I do understand the fatalistic syndrome that whatever we do or however much money we spend, nobody can guarantee immunity. So what's the point? So I guess my question to you is, what would be your recommendation? Like you said, that fear should not be the approach. Though, according to you know many schools of thought, fear, unfortunately, is often the best motivator. But anyhow, based on your experience, your understanding of sociology, psychology, what recommendations do you have to change things up, make them more optimistic, make them more proactive, make the stance more optimistic, make the stance more proactive? Well, I have many suggestions. (laughs) Not all of them might work, and I'll explain why. But starting from the point that you raised on countering the the fear and using the fear factor, I'm not saying, and maybe some listeners do feel the need to show their audience that the threat is there. The attackers are out there to get us. And that's fine. And that is making them aware of the risks they're running. Now, abusing that, using it as a veiled threat towards the uh, the organization, that won't work in the long run. And they'll be apathic and they just won't cooperate from then on. So I would, I always tend to look into a collaborative way of bringing them in instead of patronizing them. Even going back to the the lines of defense model, this is something that I actually aim in my career for a while now, that is to sit comfortably in the 1.5 lines of defense. So that is 
of course, uh, participating in the governance of the second line, but I also want to be in the trenches. I want to get my hands dirty. I want to know how my organization works. That is one of the things that we, we're doing wrong, I think, because in many cases, we're imposing our, our, our norms and values to the organization that we need to be secure. We need to do this and that. And even if we look at a child, it's much easier for a child to comply with something. And I'm not being patronizing. It's just really the, the human nature. It's compliance is much easier if you understand why you have to do something. And you have to explain why without having that fear factor all over again. So that's, I think that's the major thing that we're not doing. It's not knowing the organization and trying to impose uh, a culture where it just turns out to be a counterculture in the end. It won't work. Yep. Very true. In fact, that is true for implementation of, of anything, literally. Implementation of even large-scale systems, unless you get user buy-in from a very early stage. And to be able to get the buy-in, there's a lot of uh, good research that speaks to the importance of helping users understand what is in it for them. Why is it important for them and the organization? There has to be that alignment of values. Um, again, it's probably easier said than done. Uh, probably in many organizations, they're doing a good job of it. But I think there's always opportunities to do better and remind folks that there's the employee turnover. So what you did went well with certain folks, but when they have left the organization, you have a new crop. You have to, again, you know, get the newcomers integrated into the thinking or in the creation of what I like to call a high-performance information security culture. And to your point about creating a culture that goes counter to the overall organizational culture, I couldn't agree with you more. A good understanding of the context, a good understanding of the overall organizational culture is key to setting the foundations for a high-performance information security culture. Here, I'd like to bring in something which I share in my book. In my book, I talk about the importance of building emotional capital, which is anchored on four pillars, leadership, authenticity, having fun, feeling valued, and taking pride in their work. I strongly believe that building such emotional capital helps in creating and sustaining a cohesive and aligned working culture. And again, this is not restricted to creating a security culture. This is true for any culture. You've got to get the organizational members excited, interested, driven, because that's when they will take charge, take the initiative of recognizing that, yes, I have a work to do for which I have been hired, but there's a security component of the work that I also need to pay attention. The reason I felt this is necessary to mention this, because when we have this discussion about creating a security mindset, about getting top management actively engaged, often the feedback I get is, hey, I've been hired to do a job, and that job is not to secure the organization. I just work here, right? I just work here. Yeah, I work here. I do this job. That's for the cybersecurity professionals. Don't try to bog me down with this additional responsibility. I see the point, but unfortunately, the reality is information security pervades across functions as we have heard time and time again, that cybersecurity is everyone's business. Everyone has a role to play. It's just like the way we are fighting the pandemic. We cannot just rely on the healthcare professionals to do everything for us. We have to also do our part 
And I think that's kind of similar to how we need to deal with the cyber attacks epidemic. But anyhow, I've been rambling for a bit now. It's, it's your turn. What do you think? Um, no, I was actually absorbing. <laughs> and I couldn't agree with you more, actually. What I would like to actually to make, to, to make very clear to, to everybody listening is that you cannot create a culture. And sometimes you hear that even on the news and, or, or and in other forums. Uh, you cannot create a culture. The culture is already there for thousands of years, hundreds of years. It's a complex beast of old sets of values and norms. What you can do is to embed new practices in it, and then that's already a hefty job. And first of all, you need to understand the already existing culture of the organization when you join in, what makes them tick, what are the priorities, what's their identity. What do you refer to in your book as a togetherness? Sociologically, we're maybe even talking about uh, determining the sense of belonging. Then you move on to creating new ways of corresponding to that and embedding the desired behavior in there within that framing and not imposing a new framing. A while ago, I was delivering a presentation about awareness in Germany, and I mentioned gamification as a technique. And I remember this intervention of a German peer because it made perfect sense and it just highlights this. It, it, it said, well, that's very nice, but gamification in many German organizations won't work. That's not what we do. It's not part of what we are, who we are. They be more willing to comply if they get regular updates, communications with instructions. They don't like gamification in general. So you do need to adapt to the organization, not the other way around. You cannot just go there, <laughs> cold turkey, and try to impose something else. It won't work. That's that's a very interesting insight. So if I'm understanding this correctly, gamification can be perceived in some cultures, such as the German culture, like you said, as something not very serious. You're not being serious about it. Is that is that a fair interpretation? Precisely, yeah. Wow. I thought it was precious. That, that intervention was precious because we always need to take, to check where we are first. Again, trying to, to absorb the norms and values, the behaviors, and that is just not part of who they are. Maybe in different companies in Germany, in Germany multinational, etc., that may work, but in some others, it won't. Even if it, that's and one of the questions that another peer mentioned is that for us, that would be seen as loss of efficiency because we're playing a game instead of working. So you see, we need to be very, very careful. And what is good for us, what sounds makes and makes sense for us, especially if you're an expat like me. I also, although having my cultural studies background, I still have uh, some hurdles to come across when adapting, when when uh, absorbing the, the Dutch culture. And that's what you need to do as well from the security point of view, or in anything that you want in any other area or any other subject. I would say. I couldn't agree with you more. It's so important to constantly reflect on the the current environment, how your views, your communications could be misinterpreted or misunderstood. I think it is human nature. I definitely am part of that group where I assume that I have communicated very clearly and people understand my points of view. They get They get it. There is reasonable alignment. But I think that's a flawed approach. That's why we have the feedback where you communicate and then you find ways of getting quick feedback to ensure that there is a consensus, there is a 
common, there's a shared understanding. It brings to mind an interesting example. And this goes to the culture that exists in the U.S. nuclear Navy. It was shared by some of my former students who worked on the naval submarines. And they said, Dr. Chatterjee, when we are given a command by our senior, we are expected to repeat verbatim what was told to us before we went about executing it. Now, it might kind of sound odd. Even the person who was sharing this said, it didn't feel really good. It felt like I was a zombie. I didn't understand. I had to repeat what I was told. But again, you have to understand the context here. You can't afford to make any errors on a nuclear vessel because the consequences can be disastrous, can be fatal. So you have to take every possible precaution to ensure the communication is going through appropriately. And that's where it is very important to be meticulous in your approach, uh, whether it's planning, whether it's strategizing, whether it's communicating, and as opposed to just sending out a long email with all the details as required by the regulators. It's as if like I'm checking the box and even if people don't pick up on everything, it doesn't matter, which is often the case in many organizations, especially large organizations, where it becomes check the box approach mentality, as opposed to customizing what a person needs to know from a do's and don'ts standpoint when it comes to cyber. Your thoughts, reactions? It just reminded me of a discussion that I had, especially about communication and again, culture and the way that it depends also, as I mentioned, it depends on the industry and depends on the area. But at the end of the day, there are things that are common to every single area. And one of them, in my view, and one of them is having a clear management expectation. And you would say that having a clear strategy, a clear statement, a clear posture, and also maybe in military, it would have a different framing, but I am sponsor of the open door in policy because that's, first of all, that increases engagement. So those bonds of attachment, it provides you with the best threat intelligence you might have if people know that they can just um, report something without having any consequences against them. And another thing is, and we see that a lot, unfortunately, after major breaches, that is plausible deniability. And we see, in theory, many CEOs, many directors saying we we were not aware that this was happening, or that we're going to we're going to improve our processes from from now on. But what it translates to me is that they were not ensuring that their security stance or their risk appetite was actually corresponding to the effectiveness of the defenses. And plausible deniability is very hurtful for a security practitioner because especially the ones, those peers that have been sending presentations with all this data about breaches, about sanctions, and now you have a CEO saying that we were not aware of the risk. So it's very frustrating. And um, I think that's um, it's something that is the hardest thing to change is this posture. But it also can be instigated or be encouraged by uh, by trying to meet halfway. So trying to understand what the risk is or the risk appetite or the tolerance levels, as you mentioned in your book, are. Right. In fact, that brings to mind a couple of things. One is, I mentioned that in my book as one of the success factors of creating structures and mechanisms 
that would enable shared ownership and responsibility where whenever any cybersecurity initiative is being pitched or is being undertaken, business executives or business leaders own it. They are an active active participant as opposed to leaving it to the cybersecurity professionals to do the needful and then come back to the business to say, okay, this is how we want to implement it in your organization. Instead of doing that, if from the get-go, we have a business champion of the security initiative, it could be a much easier sell. And such structures of sharing, of shared ownership, shared responsibility also helps create that cross-functional awareness where I'm understanding the security implications of my line of business, of my product line. What are your thoughts? You think this is being practiced? This is practical? What are your thoughts? Champions was great invention in the last few years. I think it was the first attempt that I've seen to bring bring security and the core organization closer. No doubt, but um, we can do much more than that to increase that sense of belonging and embedding the the importance of cybersecurity in the organizational culture. One of the things sometimes I ask my peers is, have you ever asked your board to draft up or to just make a statement about their security stance? How is security important for them? Because not only this, this is getting a long run, because they'll have to put the money where the mouth is. And that is if for top management. Security is not a priority. Well, that's a posture, that's a stance, that's the identity of the organization. And you'll have to work with that. And then you'll have to deal with consequences because that's the the risk tolerance they have. And besides that, there needs to be a voice from top down. So if security is important, cybersecurity is important, not just because the, the media, the public needs to hear this, that cybersecurity is important, but because they actually believe in it, that it's not done only by assigning champions or a security function, is making sure that everyone in the organization throughout the supply chain, throughout the, the, state, the stakeholders list, making them aware of the risks they actually face and how they can protect themselves and the organization. So I want to work in an organization that protects the employees like myself and safeguards the interests of their customers. So I want to make sure that my data is safe. I want to make sure that my customers' uh, data is safe as an employee, I need to know that that is my role as well, but I need to, to be shown how. And this is where it's failing. We are not showing typical ways of giving that ownership. We need to show, first of all, you mentioned early on, what's in it for you? Because the human being is really selfish, won't do anything if it's not for, for some gain, personal gain. And we need to show where they're actually gaining. And one of the things I do, I often do, is when I'm sending communications or sharing some pictures. I actually advise on how people can protect their children at home, their family, because being cyber aware is also about protecting them themselves and their family. That's what they're there for. Most of us don't work in, um, in charity, so we're actually doing something. Uh, we're actually working there for a purpose and ultimately for, for our families and uh, for ourselves. So we need to talk to that part of the human being that is working uh, in the organization. Fabulous, fabulous. I want to reemphasize what you said about the leadership clarifying their stance on cybersecurity and clearly communicating where they stand in terms of the appropriate cyber posture and how do they expect to get there. Such clarity of communication is so important and it helps the organization have a better sense of where the leadership is. After all, 
as as has been said time and again, the tone has to be set at the top. But also to your point, which I have shared many times in my writings and my talks, and I'm so aligned with you here, that this posture or this mindset about cybersecurity should be genuine, should be substantive, not influenced by a certain requirement, a certain mandate, or being symbolic that let's do these things, we look good to the external folks, the community, the stakeholders. Because I get it. The communication piece is important. But if it comes out of a genuine belief, a genuine recognition that it is really important for the company to secure organizational assets, digital assets, whether that protects the internal stakeholders or the external stakeholders, and in an indirect way, the the nation, the world, we are all connected after all. So, So having that sense of social responsibility is so important. And and I don't believe we are grandizing here, trying to, you know, paint everything with a broad brush and saying, oh, you know, we'll all do the right things and hallelujah, we will live happily ever after. (laughs) I don't believe we are trying to do that, but we are just trying to reinforce certain things that seem obvious, but oftentimes they are not followed through because of reasons like, short-term goals, you know, I have to meet a certain deadline, have to meet a certain expectation. You know, this company has been formed to deliver quality healthcare. I can't afford to get too carried away by security. I have to I have to stay focused on my goals or I'm going to lose my job. So these could be reasons why the leadership is careful about what they want to put out there and they have their own way of approaching cyber. Again, uh, this is based on what I hear, what I read, what I learn from my research. But I think you make some excellent points there. I'd like to pick up on another very important fact, and that is prompt processing of threat intelligence. As you know, in many media reports on major breaches, a major reason put forward that, that caused the breach was because somebody had the threat alert, had received the intelligence from an external service provider, but dropped the ball, didn't do anything about it. Just curious, your thoughts on that? Well, doing nothing is also a strategy. <laughs> it is a choice. If we look in, in, from the outside, uh, that is risk treatment. It's making a decision how to deal with that situation. And it depends on the risk appetite. If the risk appetite is very high, well, do nothing might be logical as long as they understand the consequences. And ignoring threat intelligence, I don't know if they're actually ignoring because, again, they are consciously doing nothing. But if you, you, you look into it from a security perspective, of course, that, that wouldn't be a way of dealing with a high risk. So you would most likely try to mitigate it or eliminate it in some way. I'm not really a fan of transferring it because, again, it will come back to you like a boomerang because if you transfer a risk, Reputational damage is towards you, not towards the organization whom you're transferring the risk to. And getting back to, to the risk tolerance, it also depends in, on the industry and depends on how you want to put yourself out there. In terms of uh, solutions or solution, ICT solutions or expensive solutions that we see in the market every day, they promise you everything. They're amazing. They're 100% secure. They're their um, DNA is 100% security. And wow, it's just amazing. But I would not buy 
an XDR solution, for example, for a local bakery. Instead, I would be worried about securing my IoT, my Internet of Things, because everything is connected, even uh, <laughs> even that oven that bakes our bread. If you have a small online business, the considerations will still be totally different, but they will include prevention and detection mechanisms. And it's also about leveraging what you have, especially the resources. Not only about money, we're not talking about, again, solutions, but now we're talking about people. And again, encouraging the open door principle. So you have free threat intelligence right there. And you need to have also, you also need to have a risk treatment process that you can stand on if you're under scrutiny. So if you decided to do nothing, there may be a reason for it, but your stakeholders might not accept it because they were not aware of your risk uh, treatment or risk management strategy. So again, we go back to communication. Absolutely. And, and if I may, you know, to that point, it's very important to document because even if you decide to do nothing about an alert that you have received, documenting that, that why the decision of doing nothing, that helps in the long run when you go back and review these logs to see, yes, we didn't act on this alert because we had good reason to believe that this wasn't a significant threat or we could afford to you know, maybe take a hit, like you said, if our risk appetite is large, whatever the reason, but that discipline of recording the alerts, processing it promptly and making a quick call, whichever way you want to go with it. I'm a fan of reminding organizations that it's very important to instill that discipline of promptly processing, documenting threat intelligence. So your points there as well are very, very well made. Well, we are kind of getting towards the end of our discussion. Already. (laughs) So I would love to keep talking because it's such a pleasure engaging with you, Daniela. But I just want to make sure that there isn't anything that you're very passionate about that we didn't talk. So I'd like to give you the opportunity to share maybe your final thoughts or any additional points that are very relevant to this conversation. In a nutshell, that's difficult. I could go on and on if people are listening or pretending to listen. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) My advice would be try not to invent the culture. Again, learn from the culture of the organization, trying to adapt it from within and manage the expectations that your stakeholders have and listen to organization in all of the sectors. Spend time with the core operations, spend time with everyone in the organization to understand where the risks are, where the opportunities are and listen to the needs because that's the foundation of everything that you'll build from then on. And um, creating bridges, talking about building, creating bridges, to make sure that everyone meets halfway for threat intelligence or for everything else. And of course, mentioning awareness uh, very quickly, may- maybe try to distinguish between awareness, which I think is a patronizing term anyway, awareness and training. And make sure that for awareness, you think of three things. Explain the risks as they are towards different audiences in the organization, how they can protect themselves from them, and how to contact you if something seems abnormal. So. These are three things that you should be focusing in awareness. Do not try to reinvent it. Make sure that you find the, the best technique. Avoiding boredom, please, <laughs> because that will damage even more our reputation of being boring. And cherish your people and make sure that they have the tools to, to work confidently. Fantastic. Fantastic. I, I really like the way you summed it all up. And if I may add to that, which is totally aligned with what you said, is 
to just remind the listeners that as hands-on as top management can be, the extent to which they can create a we are in it together culture by building emotional capital, the extent to which structures and mechanisms can be in place to enable shared ownership and accountability. You talked brilliantly about awareness and training, that awareness and training needs to be customized at the same time, recognize that gamification may not be okay in certain cultures. So you have to appropriately pitch it, appropriately institutionalize it. And fishing, fishing simulation as well. I didn't mention, but be very wary of fishing simulation when you do it and how you do it, if you want to build trust. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for adding that. And then uh, we talked about prompt processing of threat intelligence. You said doing nothing could be a strategy. Absolutely. But as long as it's an informed one, you have made a conscious decision to decide not to do anything about a certain alert. Companies receive alerts all the time. So it's possible that might be the way to go about it from time to time. And finally, and you you said it very eloquently, it's really not about making a symbolic statement about our security posture. It's about truly believing in securing the organization and doing the best you can with the available resources. There is no expectation that you have to go, you know, totally out of your way to establish security protocols and procedures that are way beyond what is what would be considered reasonable. And so taking a realistic, practical and proactive stance on cybersecurity, I think can help every organization. So once again, Danielle, I thank you for your thoughts and insights. I think listeners will find them be very valuable. Thank you very much for the opportunity uh, to, to put this out there. <laughs> to shout out to my peers as well, uh, to to try and uh, make their life easier and that it was a, a pleasure. And um, if allow me, if I can maybe share an awareness regimen schedule that our listeners can use, because that may help as well. Um, I can share that. Absolutely. Well, that was great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dave. A special thanks to Daniela Almeida for her time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.